the scene is lit by a light through a window, I'll make it the biggest, thickest, chunkiest, meatiest light I can, and then sit back and look, and sort of see at what point the audience are going to stop understanding. I think that's one thing that's consistent in my work, is it always strips back to dark, always. This is Seven Stages, a podcast from the stage sponsored by Audible. In each episode, I'm going to be asking the same seven questions to an incredible lineup of people who've lived their lives in theatre. The answer to each question is the name of the show, and we'll use those answers to talk about their life on stage and off. We start at the beginning, what's the first show they ever saw? and end at the end what show would they happily watch in heaven for eternity and we go anywhere and everywhere in between i'm about to head to the national theater to meet paulie constable a couple of years ago playwright simon stevens tweeted she's a humble genius and would blush anyway but tonight paulie constable lights all three stages of the national theater paulie won her first olivier for lighting in 2005 the first woman to do so and she's since won three more a record that beyond the awards, just name any hit show of the last two decades, and chances are poorly did the lighting. Warhorse, Curious Instant, Les Mis, Angels in America. In a piece for the stage recently, Paulie talks about how much attitudes to women in design have changed and how much they haven't. She says, I've recently worked in national opera houses where the sentiment that the nasty, shouty, demanding woman should let them get on with doing things their way was very apparent. But fuck it, I'm not going anywhere. And thank goodness, here are Paulie Constable's seven stages. So we'll start with the easy one, which is what was the first show you remember seeing? I was a kind of teenager in the 80s, so I remember my parents coming home having seen Cats. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my father was a, a pilot and we lived in, in rural Lincolnshire at the time. And uh, they were so overexcited by this show that they'd seen. And a year later, they took us to see it, my brother and I. And, you know, it was amazing. It was, it was new and it was the new London. I'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. You know, it was brilliant. But the other thing I remember very vividly is the production of Henry IV, Part One, which opened the Barbican season. We were doing it as our set text for GCSE. And it was the Barbican, it was Trevor Nunn, it was, you know, that amazing cast, Timothy yeah. Dalton, Patrick Stewart. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, but visually, it was just, like, insane. I'd never seen anything like it. I would love to <clears throat> see Timothy Dalton on stage. Well, it's funny, I did work with him. He played Lord Asriel in the production of His Dark Materials oh, of here. of course, yeah. And I did discover something. We used the drum revolve quite a lot. And there was a moment, the sort of first reveal in the, in the Arctic, when the drum revolve was supposed to come around and lift up and reveal Asriel on the top of it. It was one of those texts which just kind of throwing things, you know, no time to dry tech, try it. So I filled the rear stage with low smoke, with dry <laughs> ice. Stage management called the drum revolve round. And it was at that point I discovered that James Bond was frightened of heights, obviously, because oh, no. we sort of, you know, and it would have been terrifying for any mere mortal, yeah, but yeah. I basically, he was spun round on this huge lifting platform, oh, surrounded with dry ice, unable to see the edge. Wasn't that your first Olivier? It was my first Olivier. It was my first Olivier. It was my first time working with Nick Heitner. Mm. It was the first time they'd recommissioned the, the machinery in the Olivier. Yeah, to yeah. work again. It was a big deal. Was that the first time you'd worked <clears> in the Olivier? No, I'd done a couple of disastrous shows through the kind of Trevor Nunn years. And I had learnt at my cost that the Olivier is possibly the hardest space you'll ever work in. What for you makes it difficult? It's like an enormous studio theatre. So in a proscenium right. arch, you can create images and control what the audience is looking at and sort of control how people come in and out of the space and make the space big and small. 
The Olivier is always that huge space. Even if you fill it with scenery, the huge space has a huge kind of character in the room. And I think, um, certainly in my job, you ignore that at your peril. It's epic in the true sense of the word. So yeah. the, the kind of shows for me that have really landed in there have been obviously things like Warhorse. Warhorse, tell me about Warhorse. How did that happen? Because it sounded like such a drawn out process. It was massively drawn out. I mean, like it was three years. Three years. You know, Tom Morris had the idea. And actually, I think it was his mum who sent him the book. Oh, that's so sweet. I think Tom had the idea of inviting Handspring because he'd seen the giraffe show, I think. But, the, you know, we had to do that, go the whole journey with developing the horses, developing... I mean, it was so complex. We had no idea. So there was a group of you that were just in a room. Yeah. Thrashing through, what do we do? Yeah, I mean, I was on very much on the periphery of that. I remember the first time we all met, though, it was Michael Morpurgo, Tom, Marianne, me, Ray, with Basil and Adrian were over, but we all sat outside the windmill pub, you know, down on the cut. There's this brilliant story about learning what part of the horses should move in order to express emotion. Okay. You know, and thoughts about the eyes and things. And then, of course, they got to the ears, and that was the kind of really key... The thing that clicked. It really was. Is this right that there was a point where the second half was in German? Yeah, the entire second half was in German. <laughs> almost. Well, because when we developed the script, French characters spoke French and German <laughs> characters spoke German. The fact that it made the entire second half almost... Entirely opaque and incomprehensible. I remember very vividly Nick Heitner going, what, slightly worrying. <laughs> no, going, change it. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah big yeah, time, yeah, change yeah, it. Yeah. We've always referred to the version now as the Allo Allo version because <laughs> it's just all done with accents. Yeah. I mean, you know, yes, it was life changing that show. One of the things that people forget about that show and Curious is neither one of them was built to be anything other than the show they are. You know, Curious is built. We made it to run here. Wars, we made it to run here for that Christmas slot. We never, ever assumed it was going to do anything else. In fact, when Nick Starr suggested we take it over to the new London, it was like, well, do you think we could get 12 weeks out of it across the river? Gosh. You know, it's kind of insane now, isn't it, when you think about it? Yeah, isn't well, when you think <clears throat> about it, well, 12 years later or something, mm. however long it is. Reading about the way that you lit it as well is really interesting. Mm. So the first... Before the war starts, you, it was kind of this, this, this Edwardian pastoral. Edwardian pastoral, yeah. And, and, and again, basing ideas very much on real landscape, but also painting the idea of, you know, one's relationship with the past being slightly sort of sepia, sort of not literally rose-tinted, but so often images from the past, you think of photographs from that period, they've got that kind of brownish sort of tinge you know, sepia pushing things away, but also making nostalgic, like sunset, sunrise, you know, those things that waken our emotions in that way. Devon Williams. <clears throat> exactly, yeah. exactly. So you think of the image world, and then you look at the kind of Edwardian pictorial world of kind of ideas of war, and even that was kind of beautiful. I mean, it's a gift warhorse, because of course, World War I was painted. Yeah. They commissioned artists, they wouldn't let photographs come back because it was too literal and too awful. God. But there were these artists who were commissioned to respond, both in poetry and in painting. Mm. And what they sent back was like this figurative painting, this nostalgic sense of glorious, vain glorious. It's no longer valid. It's like we cut the paper with shards and chemicals and metal and shrapnel. And you see it there on the page and yeah. you go, wow, I can do that with light. Yeah. So you feel welcomed in and then suddenly it's like the light's coming yeah. at you and it's aggressive. 
Yeah, it was extraordinary. So your dad was a pilot? He was a fighter pilot, yeah. yeah. Did you know, I mean, when did you know that you wanted to kind of do arts, theatre? I did a sort of tiny bit at school, but I did a bit of sound and a bit of painting scenery. I only used to help out in theatre because it meant you could smoke. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I mean, I I didn't really know what I wanted to do at all. I, I definitely think it was something I stumbled into. I ended up doing an English degree in London and sort of stumbled across lighting by accident. Well, so this, is, this comes to the second question, which is what's the first show you worked on? Black Heroes and the Hall of Fame. How did you, mm. how did you end up at Hackney Empire doing that? So my, and it is a true story, my, my flatmate was a, a stage manager at Guildhall. She'd fallen madly in love with this guy. I mean, you know, we're talking years before mobile phones or anything. So she'd fallen madly in love with this guy called Crispin and ran away to Spain. She had a job on the show as a follow-spot operator in the summer, and I was flat broke, and they phoned and said, can you tell her, you know, her first calls tomorrow at 10 o'clock? And I don't know why I did it to this day. I just went, yep, see you there, and pretended to be her. I arrived, no idea what I was doing, went upstairs to the gods. I mean, this is the Hackney Empire before it was refurbished. And there were the other follow-spot operator, fortunately, was a woman. Yeah. And I went over and I went, I don't know what on earth I'm doing. And she went, all right, and just talked me down. And the lighting was done by a rock and roll company. And then after that, you did kind of <clears throat> some like rock and roll stuff, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. So what, did, what was that? What were you doing there? Mainly sort of club events and that sort of thing in London. So it was just, <laughs> sounds so, you know, a 53-year-old woman sitting here talking about this. Um, <laughs> it was in the big kind of acid house days. Okay. So early days of rave culture. So mm-hmm. Westworld and Wet World and Trip. Wow. And, um, we did quite a lot of kind of mad live TV broadcasts of club events and, and then a bit of kind of crewing sort of things like, you know, Sisters of Mercy and I mean, just crazy, Great. crazy so stuff. Fun. It was so... Was it fun? <clears throat> was it fun? I think it's a completely bonkers life. It was then anyway. I mean, I think it's very different now. I mean, I don't think the hours are different. It's crazy. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. You just work and work and work till you drop. Yeah. You know, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I learnt very, very, very fast. But my now husband, but then boyfriend, worked in fringe theatre. And I started helping him out on various things. And quite quickly got involved with some really kind of influential... Mm groups people show and you're working with 784 so that that was your first show as a designer wasn't it yeah so that was as you said it was 784 scotland i'd been assisting ben ormerod so i just used to kind of focus shows for him and tour shows for him and carry his bag and learnt from him yeah you know i wasn't trained it was a show that he couldn't do it was a production of the resistible rise of arturo ui and um they asked me to do it and I was mind blown. Like, that's crazy. So I went off to Glasgow and the creative team, it was Rowanna Ben, who's now a producer. For, she was with Channel 4 for years and okay. uh, designed by Ray Smith. Yeah. So that's so, where you met Ray. <clears throat> that's where I met Ray. I think it was a cast of seven, but two of them were Ashley Jensen and David Tennant. Straight out of drama school yeah. as well. Because that, that was David Tennant's debut. And I it think was. Ashley Jensen's debut. It was. And your debut. Yeah, and my debut. It's pretty strong That's too. Quite a good, quite a good show. show. Um, and it was amazing. I'd never experienced anything like it. Meeting Ray was one of the best moments of my life. So she's become lifetime collaborator, <clears throat> yeah. friend, and mm. yeah. 
And, and that's interesting as well because it seems like through your career there have been these key people who you've worked with again and again and again. Mm. Not many of them, but who along with you have all reached the top of their game basically. So Ray Smith, Vicky Mortimer. Vicky Mortimer, director-wise as well, you know, people like Katie Mitchell, David McVicker, Rufus, Michael Grandage, yeah. Marianne. And we all met as kids. I know, it's, it's amazing. It's so great. It's amazing. <clears throat> That's what I found talking to people in theatre is that success, and it's, I don't mean you know, financial success, I don't mean critical success, I mean success in that you, you have a job and, and, it, and it lasts and you're satisfied with it, is when you find that tribe of people, those are deep bonds. They really are. And I think one of the reasons why particularly Vicky and Ray are so central to my story is about finding a voice as a young woman in the business. You know, particularly as I graduated in, what, 1989, so kind of early stages of my career were early 90s. Trying to find how I wanted to make work, trying to find rooms that I felt safe in. One of the reasons meeting Ray was so seismic for me is she started to encourage me to think like a designer and to think I had something to bring into the room. And not that I was just servicing something, but that actually I had a voice. Yeah, and, and this is interesting because you wrote a fantastic um, piece for the stage recently. And one of the things you said about the rock and roll world was people worked hard and swore harder. I'm quoting you back to you. Mm. Sorry, I know it's hard. No, it's fine. Having a woman around who wanted to do the same was unusual. I was something of a mascot, tolerated, even encouraged because I was different, but never taken seriously. Not a voice, a joke. So that was the rock and roll world. Mm. How much of that transferred to the theatre world when you started? I think the thing that I was very fortunate about when I moved into theatre was I moved into kind of very much the kind of experimental and fringe world of theatre. So I was working, you know, as you said, with companies like People Show, Complicite. You know, there were rooms where the gender politics were already so different to the gender politics of a building like this or any established company at the time. I didn't realise that I was fortunately walking into a space where there were many strong women around. There are many strong female producers. You look at those women who run Arts Admin, Glynis Henderson, Hilary Westlake, performers like Melanie Pappenheim, people like that. I mean, it's always a critical mass, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. I didn't consciously realise it, but there were enough spaces that I went into where women were in charge or were calling the shots or had purchase in the conversation that made me, I think, subconsciously at the time, realise that I could aspire to be like that. Yeah. Do you think that was, I mean, how much of that was luck that you happened <coughs> to get into the right rooms and how much of it was seeking those out? You follow your nose at that stage of your life, don't you? Or certainly I, I did in those days because I think there was less pressure to be clear about your pathway too early on. So I was drawn to a certain sort of people. Also because I was so naive about the theatre industry, mm. I wasn't looking at it as a kid who kind of went, I want to be at the National Theatre. Yeah. I just wanted to make work. Yeah. I was just loving that. Yeah. Um, in quite an idealistic sort of following my nose kind of a way. And interestingly, when you were working, so you worked for a while with Complicity, mm. and, and you, but you were doing loads of stuff for them. You I weren't I was, No, I did. So I started with Complicity because of my relationship with Ben Ormerod. I did the relight and production managed on a tour for them. And then because I'd worked for 784 and worked with Ray, they were doing this show called Street of Crocodiles here. And um, I did the thing, I'd never do this now. I sat down with Simon McBurney and I said, 
you know, I love working with Ray. I love working with the company. I've been lighting, relighting Winter's Tale for you. We get on. Please ask me to do it. And he did. And he did. I was 25. <laughs> it's like, how, how on earth? How dare I? 25 and then <laughs> Olivia nominated. Yeah. <laughs> for Street of Cocktails. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. We've slightly slipped into the third question there, which is, what's your favourite show you've ever worked on? An impossible question. Mm. But one of them you mentioned was Street of Crocodiles. Mm. Another one you mentioned was um, Pericles, which was the public acts performance here at the National um, last year, year before? 2018? The year before, it was 2018, yeah. yeah. And you said it's for saying and celebrating everything I believe that theatre can and should do. So what is it that you believe theatre can and should do? So essentially theatre is storytelling, of course, and it's storytelling in a shared space, a collective act of story. But I think once you've kind of established that kind of shared communication, the thing I think is amazing is about the change that you can feel, the profound sort of emotional change, the kind of things it can make you question in yourself. I think it's an incredibly powerful tool for reflection, for change, for looking at society, holding a mirror up to it. It's gorgeous if you can beguile and charm and lure people into that, but we always have to celebrate the fact that it's a shared experience, to use the Mike Alfred. You know, it's, it's true, and that, that's so of so much value, in, particularly in the society that we live in now, where so much, there's so many solitary kind of inward-looking pastimes. Yeah. Even watching TV, when I was, even when my kids were small, you know, everybody watched Doctor Who on Saturday night and then on, mon- on Monday in the playground, you could talk about it. Yeah. Now you can watch it anytime. There's not that collective sense of moving through something together. And I think that's the thing we can do in theatre. So Pericles sort of fulfilled that because it was a huge community chorus and <clears throat> lots of people on, a st- on the national stage who would normally be on the national stage. And I also think as a story, Pericles is about losing your home and what home is yeah you know and i think at at the moment that's a really profound question to ask ourselves you know in terms of an environmental question about what we how we treat our home yeah um but also in terms of a globalized population you know where is your home yeah but also the thing about pericles which was so profound is it reflected the community we live in having that amazing array of people having a voice but also the actual act of making it was really extraordinary for the building and I think for everybody who was involved it was um it seemed like at the time a really kind of radical rethink of the way that work could be made here Mm. another show you mentioned was Follies which I was kind of surprised by because I mean I absolutely loved that that show but I, I, it's just like it was so recent and we've done so many incredible things. It was interesting that you chose that one as being, you said, one of the most poignant things yeah. you've worked on. So tell me about that. Tell me about Follies. Why do I love Follies? I mean, I suppose part of the reason I love Follies is because it made me as a 53-year-old woman look back at myself when I was that age. You know, there's something very poignant about being Sally. It was a sort of amazing moment to be looking at that sense of what we aspire to be and then what we end up being. For me, it was the perfect aesthetic as well. Of yeah. Like theatrical. Yeah. And also, 
Stygian gloom and grimness, yeah. which is like, you know, that's sort of the two things I love. <laughs> <laughs> For something like Follies then, what was your way into that in terms of lighting? And more generally, do you have a kind of process for the way that you start thinking about I, production? I do. It's funny, isn't it, talking about lighting? Because it's a really hard thing to talk about. It's a brilliant sort of conversation stopper when people say, oh, what do you do? And you go, I'm a lighting designer. <laughs> and you go, oh, that's nice. Because the they sort of think, does that mean you design light bulbs? Does that mean... Right, but, right. So in really kind of simple terms, until I make decisions, the show will be in the dark. Yeah. So that's a really kind of basic way of looking at it. But um, in terms of design, the kind of conscious decisions I make about the quality of light, what the light's doing, I tend to develop that through the design process. So with something like Follies, as Vicky was developing the design, she was looking at images and images would take me off to looking. So I was looking at backstage pictures of theatres of the time, of the period, trying to look at what the essence of something like that is, also our nostalgic sense of what that would have yeah, been. Yeah. You say that it's going to be mm. dark until you've lit it. Mm. Does that mean you start from black and build it up from there? Absolutely. That's why my work's all so dark. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody said, to, I met a painter recently and he, he said the most brilliant thing to me. He said, uh, what's your hierarchy? Which is quite a strange what question. Does that mean? Well, I just realised what he was asking me is, what's the thing that governs my work? And I just said, darkness, absolutely. Mm. I'm more of a darkener than a lighting designer. <laughs> I think that's one thing that's consistent in my work, is it always strips back to dark, always. You start from that darkness and then you just try and build the least <clears throat> that you need. Absolutely. If a scene is lit by a light through a window, when you're making that scene in a technical rehearsal, I'll m put that light through the window, make it the biggest, thickest, chunkiest, meatiest light I can, and then sit back and look, and sort of see at what point the audience are gonna stop understanding. There must have been shows where color and kind of light and brightness has been what's needed. There's a bit of color in follies. I don't, yeah, I don't think in color. I think yeah. in Stygian grayness, I really do. I suppose a lot of my ideas come from quite naturalistic sources. So, yeah. you know, I love looking at the way you're lit in this situation here, you know, and I... How oh, am I lit? Well, you've got that kind of amazing, you know, that kind of amazing reflected kind of grey, soft, ambient light you get. Yeah, how do you put that on stage? Yeah. But actually, I'm obsessed with trying to do that. So does it spill over into <clears throat> the real world? I mean, are you constantly kind of looking at the light of your surroundings yeah. and thinking... Or if you're in a restaurant, you think, oh, I wish I could relight this or something. Yeah, I really am. And it's like, I'm a big, I do a lot of time in the mountains and running and things. And I, you know, the extremity of light in the natural environment, that's my obsession. And I think that's a lot of what I'm trying to put into my work. So, you know, Warhorse is all based around, certainly the first half, the kind of Devon stuff, it's all based around re my relationship with landscape. If you're a designer, for example, <clears throat> you can take a picture and you can capture your kind of inspirations mm. but how do you do that as as a lighting designer because you can't capture it in order to recreate it do you have to remember <clears throat> the quality I tend to I tend to remember the quality sometimes I'll find images that will kind of inspire me I, I mean I find with most with most shows there's either an artist or a film or an image language that I'll kind of keep coming back to as something to kind of base the palette and the idea of angle and that sort of thing on but yeah, a lot of it's in my head. A lot of it is things, I, I quite often tell myself the story of light. 
So if I'm really trying to work out what I'm doing, it's like I literally ask myself the question, what makes light walk into the room? What makes light, what brings light into this space in this show? What's the character of it? What's it doing? What's its function? And then I talk to myself aloud, quite often when I'm running up hills, <laughs> about, you know, it's that kind of amazing, and I describe what I'm thinking about to myself. Okay, so we'd better move on to the next question, which is, what are you working on at the moment? So we're in the National Theatre, and yeah. it's here that you're working. Uh, I'm working on The Visit at the moment, Tony so, Kushner's version, yeah. Leslie Manville, Hugo, Hugo Weaving. So uh, did you, do you know the play? I, I don't really know it. Very vaguely, because of the Complicité production 25 years ago. But this version is so, so different. The other thing that you always seem to be working on is just kind of supporting people and helping people, particularly younger women. It's amazing. Mm. How, you must, I mean, you must just spend so much time doing this. It's, well, between that and trying to wake the world up to kind of what sustainability means yeah. in the theatre. You know, I am at that stage in my career where it's like there's so much to do. And I love my job. I really love lighting shows. But there's also a lot of other stuff to do. I mean, if we want a more diverse workforce, which we absolutely do, those people that we need to encourage into these rooms, they're not just there waiting outside the door to be invited in. They need to be encouraged into the possibilities of, what we, of where we are and what we do. And that means mentoring and being a role model and encouraging. It's not an overnight thing, and it's why I wrote the piece in the stage. You know, it's like any kind of campaign has to work on so many levels. You know, there has to be kind of governance and there has to be changing policies within buildings, but there also has to be grassroots change, really questioning what the barriers are. Most lighting courses, for example, 50% or more of the intake are female, and yet you look at the industry, that's not represented in the industry. Plus looking at why people don't even apply in the first place, you know, trying to shift the culture, that's a massive job. And then there's the massive job of the climate crisis. And I think one of the problems for the lighting side of our industry is that we, as with so many things in our society, you know, you watch Eurovision, and it's just gazillions of lights <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. everywhere. You know, this kind of belief that more is more. It's like, so we're saying to the audience, yeah, look, we've got loads of lights and they all look, you know, like they're sucking up energy. And obviously for you, that's <coughs> completely counter to the way that you work. Of course. Which is the, the less is more approach. But what, I mean, was there, a, was there one that came first? Like, was it? I don't know that. It's a re I ask myself that question yeah. a lot. It's like, is my aesthetic one, because I like to strip something down to its essence, is that something that interests me because of my sort of relationship to sustainability? Or is that an aesthetic that I've always enjoyed? And actually, it's, it's also readily open to the possibility of adding sustainability to my thinking. I think the big thing for me is consistently is about rigour. If you want to use a gazillion lights, use a gazillion lights, but one, don't assume you have to use a gazillion. And also, if you're gonna use a gazillion, make sure they're all working really hard and doing what you need to do and that they boil down to the essence of what it is. Next question. What was the one show that got away? Now, 
you, you were slightly reluctant to answer this because, you know, you didn't want to talk about things that you'd turned down or mm. you couldn't do because it implied that someone who did do it was second choice. But mm. what about as an audience member? Was there stuff that you wish you'd, you'd seen and you just didn't get round to or you missed your ticket or whatever? The only thing I really kicked myself for absolutely missing was the last time Tom Waits played live in London. <laughs> <laughs> which, which At the Dominion. Leads on to the <laughs> next question, which is... Such a good answer. If you've got an um, empty space and unlimited budget, what would you stage? Tell me about your vision. This is incredible. It has to be at Tom Waits. Or, I mean, I went to see American Utopia, the David Byrne show. I, I went to see it in uh, on Broadway. I was over working for a couple of days. I was over for two days, and I thought I had one night off, and I realised it was on. I just walked in and bought a ticket because I adore David Byrne mm. almost as much as I love Tom Waits. Yeah, yeah. I sat in the stalls and I watched this show. I, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs> and I, when he played at home, this must be the place, I just cried and cried and cried. And the woman next to me said, she's Australian, she said, are you all right? And I was like, yeah, I'm so happy. <laughs> it's like, <clears throat> but I thought there's something about the power of music. I don't know whether you have seen Nick Cave made an amazing movie after his son died called Once More With Feeling. Yeah, yeah. Um, which to me is just one of the most sort of profound and brilliant pieces about grief yeah. and, and, and the art of making. That film stayed with me. Oh my God, it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. It was a strange mm. thing as well because they started making it before, mm. sadly, his son died. And they'd started making the album before the song yeah. died. But suddenly all these songs seemed to be, which he hadn't written about It was almost prophetic, grief. wasn't it? Yeah, it they was seemed so to weird. be about grief. And it just became, I mean, I think that might be his best album. It's certainly like the Nick Cave album that I go back to again and again. Me too. Also, the, the reason I really love that film is that not only the art of making, but the art of making something that wasn't literal. There's something in my career about starting in music coming through opera and in a way I'd love to apply that's why I talk about making a sort of piece with Tom Waits you know just take it completely in the abstract the full answer that you gave was Tom Waits performing Frank's Wild Years live on a bare stage yeah with you creating space and breath around it and Vicky Mortimer designing yeah which mm. I mean needs to be commissioned really doesn't it does it? doesn't it <laughs> I completely agree I think it would be where's Rufus mm. Let's get him down. <laughs> Tom, there's this thing we want to do. Final question. Is there a show that you'd happily watch on a loop for eternity? Gaudiamus by the Marley Theatre, which was... I, I went to see it at the tramway. I was really fortunate to work a lot in Glasgow at a very great time of kind of for culture in Glasgow. And Ray and I were working up at 784. I think it probably was Scotland Matters rather than... Arturo Ui. Anyway, we went to the tramway to see it, and I, I think there wasn't a moment in the show when I didn't just want to scream with joy. <laughs> it was so... The performers were amazing. The look of it was so amazing. You know, it was the flying grand piano, and it, I mean, it was just... I remember the show in glimpses, but I remember the feeling of watching the show yeah, that's, I th those are the shows that stick with you, is when you can remember what you felt like. You can put yourself oh, back God. into that mindset of being there, experiencing it, and mm. the excitement, and the yeah. kind of fizz of it. I, 
do you know what? It must be for a lot of people that the, that experience comes from shows that you've done. Warhorse, Curious Instinct, mm. well, for me, Follies as well. That's brilliant. Thanks, Paulie. That's, that's everything. That's seven. Brilliant. More than seven. The amazing Paulie Constable. As I mentioned at the beginning, this podcast is sponsored by Audible. Alongside their audiobooks, they have a huge array of Audible theatre productions. And one I really liked recently was Sam Shepard's True West, starring Kit Harrington, Game of Thrones, and Johnny Flynn. I'd actually missed it in the West End, um, but it's the Matthew Dunster production from 2019. And they recorded it when it was playing at the Vaudeville Theatre, capturing their performances. So it's amazing to hear the two of them play these dueling brothers. If you don't know the play, it's an amazing kind of tense study of sibling rivalry and opposites and wounded man masculinity this is such a good production you can listen for free with a 30-day trial at audible.co.uk forward slash true west and after 30 days prices start at 7.99 a month and it renews automatically i'll be back in a fortnight with my next guest former artistic director of the young vic david lan as ever there's reviews news interviews plenty more at the stage.co.uk but for now thanks for listening and goodbye <laughs>